everybody and welcome to a new episode of Evie's Korean Drama Podcast Show. My name is Evie, I'm your host, and I am a K-drama obsessive. So this is the show where I waffle on about all of the K-drama that I love. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Evie Korean Drama Podcast. There you will find extra podcast episodes and updates on what I'm watching at the moment. Also, just before I get started, please be warned that I do swear a little bit on this show when I get excited. And when I'm talking about K-drama, I always get excited. Alright, so I thank you very, very much for listening and let's get on with the K-drama show. drama that I want to talk about today is called Chicago Typewriter. This is a 16 episode kind of I guess a, a romance fantasy that came out in 2017. I didn't watch it when it came out. I'm not really sure why except you know I guess I wasn't like any of the actors or actresses in it. I wasn't particularly like oh I've got to watch that because of them. So I think it just kind of slipped under my radar even though I definitely knew about it and kind of always meant to check out um, Chicago typewriter. I just sort of never got around to it. Uh, but recently I got a lovely email from a listener of this podcast um, from Lizzie and Lizzie very much so was suggesting this show to give it a go and I'm so glad that she did because I really really enjoyed this. It has a really lovely I don't know, I guess almost a dreamy quality to it. And it's a real kind of mishmash of this very serious, tragic kind of undertone of this past life um, during occupation era Korea, uh, where Japan occupied Korea um, between, I think it's 1910 and 1945, in the end, which is the end of the Second World War, obviously. Um, and then it has also just a real kind of modern uh, contemporary K-drama vibe, which is just all these kind of, um, you know, modern characters going through their modern lives and having all like meet cutes and just silly hijinks and dealing with all that kind of stuff um, that, you know, we're used to from those sort of modern sort of more workplace kind of set dramas. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed the mishmash of the very serious past kind of story in it um, interwoven with you know a much more modern light and kind of fun romance vibe so yeah it was a really really interesting show um, also I found it very fascinating because there is a it does touch on a period in Korean history that is very very interesting um, a very dark period and I did like just getting that little glimpse into that, you know, occupation era career. It was very, very interesting, even though the drama doesn't kind of sit in that um, period as as much as maybe even I would have liked it, actually, because it's so interesting. Um, so I guess, is there anything else I want to say before I get stuck into this? Um, what I'm probably going to do, I think, is just sort of start with the first episode, tell you a little bit about the setup and how it begins, because I do think that first episode is like, it is such a fun, charming ride. Um, it's a really enjoyable opening to the show. I think that that really endears the characters to you. So I really, really enjoyed it. So I'll probably just touch on that first episode and kind of tell you guys a little bit of the story and the setup and then maybe go into a few of the characters. Um, and then I, I kind of made some random notes while I was watching it. So I'll probably go through those as well. So I guess we'll get started. Uh, so this is Lee Evie talking about Chicago. Chicago typewriter. So the lead actor in this K-drama is Yu Ah-in. So I have, it's kind of interesting, the very first time I ever saw the actor Yu Ah-in was in the really wonderful Korean drama, um, a sagok, kind of like a rom-com, you know, historical drama called uh, Scandal. So, uh, that one's such a hard one for me to say. 
So Sangokwan is actually, um, you know, a university in Korea, but it's been a university in Seoul since the Joseon dynasty. And Sangokwan scandal is set in that university back during the Joseon dynasty. And it stars um, Park Min Young as a young woman who's pretending to be a man to kind of get into the university. And in that drama, you are in plays the second male lead. It was the first time I saw him. I loved him in it. Like my heart completely belonged to the second male lead to the point where that that drama broke my heart because obviously the second male lead didn't you know finish on top with the um you know and win the female lead's love unfortunately so it's just so interesting because I adored him in that drama he was so good and then you know that was many years ago I watched it and I just sort of didn't ever see him in anything that I liked ever again and you know I, I guess I stopped sort of following him around drama land and I just sort of forgot about him as an actor which is really weird like he's very famous and so like I'd always see what he was doing but I wasn't necessarily watching it and I kind of forgot I think about you know his charm he's very very good um he's he also looks I mean it's been a long time since I saw him in that first drama he just looks He's got such a fresh baby face, I guess. He doesn't seem to age at all, ever. So you are in in this is, I think he is extremely charming. Like his character in the modern section of the drama is, you know, I guess it's a little bit typical for a male lead. You know, he's a bit of a, well, he's, he's an author. He's a genius author and he's, you know, the best author in the world and he knows it. You know, he knows that he's handsome, he knows that he's a good writer and he will take every moment to remind everyone around him of those things. So that's a very typical kind of male lead character. You know, those characters that are constantly going on about how good looking and awesome they are. I find that really strange because I do prefer <laughs> men to be or just people in general to be a little bit more humble than that. But he is still very, very endearing. Um, I think, you know, you can tell that this character, um, the character's name is Han Seju. So Seju is clearly very defensive. He's had a hard life. Um, so basically he's on top of the world. He's called Korea's Stephen King. He's written a whole bunch of novels that have been, you know, translated into all different languages overseas. He's like number one in every country and he does worldwide, you know, tours and book tours and things like that. Um, and also because he's young and handsome, he's like got an extra level of fame because of that. Um, the drama starts and he's obviously, you know, I guess a bit defensive. We can tell he's had a bit of a bad kind of um, maybe lonely childhood and he's not very connected with other people. But it kind of starts and he's on this book tour. He's in America and he sees this beautiful typewriter in this cafe where he's doing a book signing. And the typewriter is actually a Korean one. So the keys are all, you know, with Hangul on them. And he kind of just sees it and he has this really intense moment and he wants to buy it. But the cafe owner's like, nah, like I really happen to love this special typewriter and you can't have it. So you are in, oh, sorry, his character, Han Seju, goes back to Korea. But meanwhile, in this little cafe, the typewriter kind of does some ghost shit and like it's really creepy and freaks out the cafe owner and um writes you know it actually keys uh starts typing without anyone there and it basically persuades the cafe owner to send the typewriter to Han Seju in Korea so that is what the cafe owner does. And meanwhile, we kind of meet the female lead. So she's played by an actress called Lim Soo Jung, who I'm pretty sure I've seen her in stuff. Um, her face was very familiar. I think she's very good in this. She's very likable. Um, so she plays a character called John Sol. So Sol, at this point in time, when the drama begins, is, you know, she's doing a few different odd jobs, but her main thing is like, um, I think it's like a can do anything sort of delivery service. And she gets hired to deliver the typewriter without knowing that that's what it is to Han Seju. And she happens to be his super fan. Um, but his super fan, as in she's not crazy and trying to like do anything weird. She just really likes his writing. And we find out through the course of the drama that, you know, she was his first fan and she used to work in Subway. Oh my gosh. 
the product placement in this drama is insane. There is Subway at least five times every episode. And so every time they have a date or, you know, like a memory of their past meeting, it always occurs in Subway. It's very funny. <laughs> so anyway, um, 10 years prior, she used to work in Subway and he used to come in as a poor writer, you know, who hadn't been published. And he would sit there all day long writing his books in Subway. And so she sort of read a little bit of his work then without him realizing and just thought he was very dedicated and was very impressed by him and she's always had a thing about writers her whole life which is quite interesting because you know Soul isn't a writer herself she just has this weird fascination with them I think uh, so she you know was just very moved by him 10 years earlier and so as she you know she never really speaks to him and never really gets to know him and he doesn't even remember her but as he rises to fame she's always sort of watched him and really cheered him on um, so 10 years later she's now you know his super fan and is delivering this typewriter to him and what they don't know at this point is that there is <laughs> I guess you would say a ghost living in the typewriter um, that's a bit of a spoiler because I do really love the way the supernatural elements of this drama unfold very slowly throughout the show and you get these little glimpses and I, I really liked it. it it's kind of presented like a mystery um, so that you don't really know how these pieces fit into the modern storyline so I've, I've kind of like it's hard to tell it in the way that the drama does so you know this is a bit of a spoiler filled review or discussion um, but I did really like the way the show was written I thought that was very cool um, but basically they you know Sol and Han Seju have kind of a meet cute where she's like you know almost salivating over him not because you know he's good looking but because she's just so in love with his writing and you know I guess has put him up on a pedestal after all these years where she's really just admired him from afar and she's so excited to meet him and he is horrified by her because he, he you know he lives in this insane mansion in Seoul and he just doesn't um you know, he doesn't have any friends. He's really estranged from what little family he has. And it's very clear from everything that he's telling her that he has a lot of crazy fans. So he has people that try and break into his home, people that say, you know, they know him from their past lives and just every kind of crazy thing you could think of ever in your life, basically. So he's very defensive and she turns up and um, they kind of have this like, you know, hijinks um, ensue with this crazy dog turns up and runs into his house and like eats his USB where all his writing is. And he kind of hires her to, to deal with it because he can't. And um, it's very, very funny. This was the point where I think I really started to like Han Seju because um, Seju from the start of the drama, he's, you know, he's very aloof. He's very arrogant. He's a little bit you know, cold and cool and stuff. But once he kind of meets up with Sol and they have this weird sort of meet cute kind of thing happening and they're both running around and it's just complete madness. You know, he's really blustery and out of his depth and over the top and very, very funny. And I think this was the point where I just, I really got to like his character. Like he really comes across as very endearing and so does she in a very different way as well. So I really liked both of them. It was really fun just seeing them run around the house trying to capture this dog and then, you know, running down the street. And he's, um, Yuan is very good. I think he's like, when he acts, there's like a, I don't really know how to put it, but you know, some people are just really good actors with their face, but then some people it's like, it's a full body thing and there's like a physicality to it. I don't know. Like he's very, and I don't just mean like, yeah, he is good looking, but that's not even what I'm talking about. I don't really know how to describe it. And maybe it's that, you know, that elusive like it factor thing that they always talk about when they talk about Hollywood. Like there's just something about him in the way that he moves, in the way that he carries himself, in the way that, you know, even he's running around and shit. Um, he's very magnetic and very, you really, I don't know, he's very good. Like, I guess charismatic. I don't even really know how to describe it. But Yuan is very, very good in this drama. Um, and I think his modern character isn't, you know, it isn't the most original, unique, fresh kind of character, but he does really work it. And I think it really works in this drama. I really, really enjoy it. 
So Seju basically really doesn't believe that Sol is just, um, you know, like a harmless fan of his. She, he is just positive that she is, you know, crazy and that she's a crazy fan and that she's trying to do something to him like she's a stalker. And in the show, you really, you can really understand why he thinks that. He has just basically had a string of like one bad experience after another. He's had so many weird people approaching him, trying to do weird things or, you know, thinking they're his best friend or lost love or all sorts of crazy stuff. So he really just gets rid of her. He kicks her out and every single time they meet up, he's really quite mean to her. Um, but meanwhile, you know, of course, the person that's stalking him is not John Sol. It is actually some weirdo dude. And this weirdo dude, very creepily, breaks into Han Seju's house and basically tells Han Seju that Han Seju was writing messages to this crazy fan through his books. And the fan has received those messages and he knew what to do. And it turns out this fan has murdered people because he thinks that Han Seju told him to. And I, I really liked this. This is like, it's very, very dark um, as opposed to maybe the very light kind of funny and fun opening episode. Um, but I really, really liked that kind of deep, dark underbelly of that fandom, you know, and then particularly what I like about it is what it does to Han Seju. Like, you know, obviously he's like, no, I never sent you messages. I don't know who you are. You're not my best friend. I didn't tell you to kill anyone. Um, and basically John Sol turns up and saves his life. But even so, even though he's still living, this, this experience completely ruins Han Seju's entire well-being and life and mental state. So this crazy fan who stalked him, who did murder people, um, you know, once he kind of has a face-to-face -face moment with Han Seju and Han Seju really, you know, renounces him and says, no, I've got nothing to do with this. I, you know, you don't understand me and I wasn't talking to you. So this crazy fan goes to prison, of course, because he's murdered people um, and he kills himself. And Han Seju just feels shit. You know, he feels fucking terrible about the whole thing, even though, you know, technically, of course, it's not his fault. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet... He was still the cause of this series of events. Like the fact that he wrote that book is a trigger. It was a trigger to a terrible thing. And suddenly he cannot write anymore. Um, you know, he, he can't write his books anymore. And he's on such a tight schedule that this is a big, big problem. Um, so another thing that I absolutely adored about this drama was all the author stuff and the writing stuff. Um, when I first started watching it, I wasn't sure if I would because, you know, I guess the realities of being an author, like obviously I'm an author, which is why I was so interested in this side of the drama, but the realities of being an author are obviously very, very different to usually how they're portrayed um, on screen. You know, there's a fantasy element to the way writers and authors are shown on screen, which basically usually comes down to how much money they make <laughs> um, but I, I kind of thought I probably wouldn't enjoy that aspect of the show because you know seeing Han Seju who's so young and he's only written like maybe I don't know how many books he has in the show but probably only like four or five and yet he's like you know considered on the same level as, as Stephen King who's been writing for like 40 years or something and has like 35, 40 books out. And it's like, you know, no one really in the world is as big as, you know, these authors that have been going for ages and ages. And that's why they are all older, you know, like if you get that rich. But anyway, see, this is me just complaining because I'm a struggling author who hasn't made a million dollars. <laughs> so in the end... In fact, completely opposite to what I expected, I loved, I loved the way this show explored being an author and being a writer and what it means and the idea of plagiarism and what that means to an author. I absolutely adored those elements of the show and I think that really surprised me to find these nuggets of truth in the story. So some of the things that I really liked about it, there was one scene. So Han Seju begins almost having these dreams or these memories of his 
basically they are memories of a past life, but it takes him a very long time in the drama to accept that that is what they are. But there's this really amazing moment and it's one of the very first sort of memories that kind of seeds in his head and he is sitting at a typewriter his hair is much longer um, and it's the 1930s in you know Japan occupied Korea and he's typing on this typewriter and this clearly young woman who is you know also played by Lim Soo Jung so John Soul's past life character but she's dressed like a man so I'm not sure if at this point he's supposed to think she's a boy or whatever anyway um and she is kind of talking about you know they say that a pen is mightier than a sword and she's kind of clicking together this machine gun as she's talking to him and she's very very cool and she basically tells him that you know if a pen is mightier than a sword then a typewriter should be mightier than like a freaking machine gun and she says to him you know don't write for fame or money or women you know, write something good, write something that means something. And I, he's really, really struck by the fact that she says this to him. And because I loved it, I loved that moment so much. Like as an author, I think a lot about the power of stories to, you know, change people. Um, And the idea that words can impact the world or change the world is such an incredible thing you know and I in that moment where John Soule's past life self says those words I mean you know they're standing in a country that has been occupied and you know that she's saying like writing can make a difference you know do something to change the world for the positive do something with your work that could you know impact the way the country is. And I just thought it was such a powerful, strong moment. And I wonder if other people would be as affected by that or not. I don't know, but I just loved, I loved it. And it really made sense to me that when she says this, um, Han Seju's past life character is just, he's so struck. Like this is such an important moment as he looks at her and she says this. And I totally got it. I could completely understand how powerful those words were. And part of it too is like, I think, you know, believing in him, in his ability to be a writer that is good enough to do that, to change the world with his writing. Like she, in another way, you know, she's saying she believes in him that he could, if he wanted to do that. And it is a really amazing moment. So I really loved kind of these these points where it touches on being a writer and being an author and what words and stories can mean to the world. You know, some people just think, oh, it's all entertainment. But I think that it's more than that. You know, it's an exploration of people and emotions and these things really mean a lot um I guess I'm waffling but you know it's something that I really really care about stories and writing um the other thing I really liked uh in the drama which was about writing that it touched on so back to the story Han Seju in his modern life you know he Because of this terrible incident that's happened, he cannot write anymore. And there's a point where his manager comes over and says to him, you know, we'll get you a ghostwriter. And the manager just, you know, he's he's not a bad guy. I quite liked him. He's not evil or anything, but he does like money. That's what he wants. Um, But also Han Seju has totally sort of given him his blessing. You know, he's picked this guy and that's what this guy cares about. And, you know, this guy has turned him into a multi-zillionaire. So it makes sense. Um, But Han Han Seju's reaction to the idea of a ghostwriter being brought in for him is... I loved it, you know, and he has such a, it's such a moral and ethical conflict within him. Like his first reaction is just a defensive, like, fuck no. Like that is the worst thing you can ever say to a writer because what his manager says to him is it doesn't matter what work we release. It only matters that your name is on it. Your brand is all that matters. And there is nothing that you could say that would be worse, I think, to an author. And I loved the fact that even though Han Seju is, you know, he is a zillionaire, he's got all these books out, he's so famous, everyone knows he's a good writer, everyone believes in his ability. The idea of 
all that matters is his brand and not his words and his stories. That is such a shattering concept for him. And I I felt that was so true to life. Like I loved it. I could completely understand how utterly just demoralizing and upsetting that moment was. And I saw, I could completely understand why Han said you get so defensively angry at the idea that, you know, all that matters is his brand name and not even his words anymore. Like it's awful. Um, and it certainly doesn't help him figure out how to write. <laughs> um, he, he's got this idea for this kind of um, a romance story that would be set in Japan occupied Korea. And he kind of pitches it and they decide they're going to put out a serial. So like, I guess, one chapter a week kind of thing. Um, And he can't write it. And his manager keeps being like, we'll get you a ghostwriter. We'll get you a ghostwriter. And Han Seju is freaking out because there's a part of him that doesn't want to lose everything he's built and his credibility and his reputation. But also ethically, he could never, ever, ever accept to do that and I really liked how this was you know it was this real push and pull thing for quite a few episodes in the show as he really wrestles with what to do in this situation and I really liked how serious the show took it because I think if you're an author that is serious you know that is really really serious stuff that is your life's work it's what you do and it's what you're passionate about so I really enjoyed that um, in the end what happens is Han Seju does put in his first chapter but he has like taken a load of sleeping pills and I think he was a bit drunk or something so he thinks that he's written it but he didn't. And yet the story on the page is the story from inside his dreams, I suppose. But really, we know these are memories of his past life. So he submits and he thinks he's written it and it is this huge success. But then the next week, he starts to doubt whether he did write it or not. And in the end, he catches this dude in his house on his typewriter actually writing this story. And yet they are still the images and the memories and the story from his head. So it's really, really interesting. And of course, this random dude in the house is the second male lead played by the actor Go Gyung Pyo. Uh, he plays a character called Yujino. And Yujino kind of eventually you realize that he is a ghost. But at first, you know, Han Seju thinks that Eugino has been hired by his manager, that he's a ghost writer. Um, and so Han Seju basically calls, a, you know, he wrestles with the idea of submitting this other man's work under his own name because he can't do it. When he tried to write it, it was just shit. But in the end, he decides that ethically, you know, he has a line and he will not cross it. And I thought that was so cool. I loved how seriously he took this whole debate and I also loved that he didn't he didn't agree to submit this other guy's work under his name I really liked that he did that Han said you made that decision and because he thinks he already has and it's gone out into the world he has to rectify the situation situation so Han said you calls a press conference man I'm having trouble speaking right now (laughs) I must be getting excited so at this press conference he basically tells everyone that he didn't write it a ghostwriter wrote it and his ghostwriter sitting right next to him and of course there's no one there so it turns out that he's you know this dude who's been hanging out in his house Eugene O is in fact a ghost and he is the ghost from inside the typewriter he is also Han Seju's best friend from back in you know their past lives and that's when the past life stuff really starts coming out we usually get kind of one scene per episode of this you know this whole different past life story that we begin to string together Well, this discussion has gotten a bit meandery. I didn't stick to the structure that I said I would at all, of course. I don't even know why I bother starting out saying what those structures will be. I never stick to them. So anyway, I guess the next part of this show that I really wanted to talk about is the past life stuff. Um, I loved it. It is so good. Um, I really love the way that the past life is introduced into the story. It begins almost as dreams and these little like 
slips of yeah dreams and stuff in people's minds and it's it is actually very dreamy the way that it slowly slides into the modern storyline um and then there is a point that i really really liked um where hansa Ju is out in his own garden and suddenly there's mist everywhere and then he sees you know this ghost guy uh Juno, but this is before um he kind of knew who he was and he's on like, you know, what are those little, uh, oh my gosh, I forgot what they're called. You know, you sit in the back and it's kind of getting pulled along, whatever those things are. Um, and he sees him go by and there's mist everywhere. And suddenly Han Seju is not in his garden at all. Suddenly he's on a street in, you know, Korea in the 1930s occupied by Japan. And there's soldiers and there's, you know, it's all 1930s style. And he's just looking around and he's really, really shocked. And suddenly this young woman who is dressed like a man, but is very obviously a woman. <laughs> uh, so this is John Soul's past character, runs up to him, grabs him and starts running away. And she's getting chased by police. And she obviously knows him. And he's just like, what is even going on? Like he has no idea, but he's just going with it. And so they run down the street and they're trying to get away. And her hand has blood on it. And she's clearly been involved in some sort of, um, you know, uh, like I think they're called the Joseon Youth Liberation um, Organization or Army. So they're like an underground resistance force. Um, and so John Sol's past life character is a sniper and she's obviously, you know, been doing something and she's running away from the police. And as they go around a corner, they realize there's another patrol ahead. So she pushes him into this little alcove and because she's got a hide, you know, she pulls off her hat and she has like beautiful long hair. So suddenly, you know, she transforms into a woman and she just grabs him and kisses him. And he's just really, really shocked. So I loved this. This is like, you know, the modern Han Seju reliving a memory that obviously is his past life self. But the way the show does it, where he actually steps into that memory was really fun and really cool. And then quite a few episodes later, um, we finally see the true story behind that memory because Han Seju himself at this point is properly remembering what happened. And so this is like, I loved this scene. And um, we see basically the exact same scene happen again, except this time instead of modern Han Seju, it's his past life character. And so I'm just going to call him past Seju because I can't remember what his real name was in the show. It was like Hui Young or something like that. But past Seju, um, you know, he just looks completely different because he's like a 1930s dude and he has like long kind of messy hair and stuff. And um, past John Sol grabs him, does the same thing. They run through the streets away from the patrol. And then, you know, she kind of pushes him into this alcove against the wall. But then we realize there's a lot more to the scene that we ever got to see the first time, which I, I loved. I loved this kind of like, I don't know, it kept kind of bouncing back to this kiss scene because obviously it was a very important moment in their lives back then, this first kiss between them before they've really recognized or admitted that they have any feelings for each other. And I loved the idea that we got to see it multiple times, but each time more information would get revealed that would make it would put it into context so much better in the stories of their lives. And so you understand how much meaning this moment actually has by the time you see the full scene. It's quite moving and powerful. Um, I loved it. This was my favorite scene of the show. And that is potentially because I'm such a romantic at heart. But, you know, if you see a really good romantic moment between characters that is so well done, that really moves forward the plot in terms of their relationship and their feelings and reveals so much about the characters like it is just written so well this moment it is so clever and the way that it is um, slowly revealed through different parts of the show is is just so clever I just loved it um, yeah, it's a, such a powerful moment so in this version past uh John Sol, you know, pushes past Han Seju against the wall and she's got her hand over his mouth. And we know from, you know, that her past life self, her father had been murdered by, um, I think, soldiers, you know, many years prior. And she'd been saved by a young man in the forest and she only ever saw his eyes and not his face. And so she finally, after all these years of trying to figure out who he is, 
this is the moment where she realizes that it was past Han Seju, who she thinks is a good for nothing womanizing writer. And suddenly, you know, she has to reassess who she thinks he is. Because if he saved her, it means that he's actually part of the resistance, which he has been pretending to her, at least for a long time, that he isn't anything to do with it. And this is because he is actually the leader of the organization. So I really loved it. So immediately, you know, her, the way that she perceives him has completely shifted in that moment. She is suddenly realizing that he is not at all what he has portrayed himself to be all these years to her. And they have this very bickering fighting relationship where they both basically, you know, I think just hate on each other all the time and yet clearly quite like each other too. I think it's one of those kind of crackling chemistry kind of bickering things where obviously they're both just wanting to be near each other all the time. So they're chasing each other around to yell at each other. Um, so then, you know, the patrol is coming. So just like in the other flashback we saw, um, Pastor John Sol, you know, pulls off her hat and shakes her hair out and says, you know, like, if you're going to write these romance novels, I'll give you, I'll give you some content for them. And she kisses him and it's a really good kiss. And this is the one that we see originally. So it's, it's like, it's not chaste at all, but it's just like very gentle and she kisses him. But when they kind of, she starts pulling back, they show this kind of shot from behind and you can see that her fingers are in his hair and there's like, there's something going on, but it's all very, I guess, contained, but you can tell that they're both very moved by this moment. But then past Han Seju, just like he drops his glasses on the ground and he just like grabs her and absolutely goes for it. And this isn't like, you know, so many K-drama kisses are so chaste, like no one moves their mouths and they just kind of press faces. And I'm always a bit sad by that. Like I love a proper good kiss scene, especially in K-dramas, because you do have to wait so long for these moments. And they're so powerful when they come, like you've been literally, you know, wanting this to happen for hours and hours and hours in the lead up to these kiss scenes. Um, And this one is like, it was so good. It was so satisfying. And he kisses her like a real human being would kiss someone that they're completely in love with. Like he moved his mouth and everything. It was so good. But basically out of the whole year, I know, um, I just, I just think it was so good. This was probably the kiss scene that stands out to me the most that I have watched in fucking ages. Like it was, it was, it was really, really good. <laughs> I don't want to like keep crapping on about it too much, but like, man, it is worth watching this drama for that scene because of the setup of it and the background of it and what you know, it is such a powerful moment, but it's also just really, I don't know, I guess it's such a revealing moment of how these two characters actually feel about each other when they've been pretending to hate each other for so long. And then the second there's like an excuse where they have to kiss to be safe. It's like both of them just let down their guard and how they really feel is just like out there for the world to see. And I really, really loved it. And then the second, you know, the kiss is over and the guards have gone, like he immediately pretends, you know, it meant nothing. I was just doing this, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, as a viewer, you know, the truth, you know, that this was actually how he really felt. And I really loved that. I thought it was unbelievably romantic but also very sexy and just like it was so good I think it was my favorite kiss scene that I can think that I've watched in such a long time I absolutely loved it honestly this is like it's a very complex and far-reaching drama because there's the past life stuff the future stuff there's so much to talk about um and I've already waffled on for quite a long time I think there's not a huge amount more I'm going to go into depth with but I did want to talk a little bit about the character of Eugene O who is the ghost so in the past he was just you know he was one of the guys in the um in the resistance and you know he was a freedom fighter and he was obviously completely in love with John Sol but we can see that her feelings are not really fully heading in that direction and they certainly aren't in the modern storyline but one thing I really enjoyed was him as a ghost in the modern world like 
you know, at first he's just in the house with Han Seju and it's kind of fun. But once it kind of, I guess you bring his past love, John Sol, into it and he's seeing her again. And he's seeing the fact that Han Seju and John Sol can be together and live together in freedom in modern Korea that is not occupied. And although he's happy, there is this bitterness to it, you know. He didn't get to live again. He didn't get to experience his country unoccupied. And it's it's very sad. Um, and I really liked, I kind of liked, I suppose, that him being a ghost isn't only played for hijinks. And there is a little bit of deep thought about how that might actually be. You know, he's there, but he's on the outside of everything. And even if people can see him and touch him, he's still a ghost. He's not going to grow old. He can't be with John Sol even, you know, if she'd wanted to be with him. But, you know, it's it's very tragic. And there's this really, really wonderful moment where a different character who's sort of like John Sol's sort of surrogate mum kind of person who's been looking after her. And she's also a psychic or, you know, a shaman. And she has this conversation with the ghost, Eugene you know, She can't see him, but she knows he's there. And she basically says to him, like, ghosts have to live as ghosts and humans live as humans. And a ghost that tries to live as a human is going to become bitter. You're going to feel sorry for yourself and you're going to wonder why you don't get all the things that those humans get. And she said, that's how you become an evil spirit. That is what turns you bitter and dark and twisted and I loved it it's such a cool moment because he knows it's true because he's been wrestling with the idea of revealing himself to his love John Sol or not and in the end he can't help himself he just does it and he really tries hard not to he really tries to heed that advice but he can't do it he wants her to see him so badly and it's very very sad um but really well done I think really well portrayed and I, I just it's it's kind of that whole thing where you know you can play everything for laughs but I sometimes I just love it when a writer will sit down and think if this actually happened how would that actually feel like if you were a young man who fought for your country um, under occupied Korea and you died for that cause and you couldn't live your life you couldn't become old you couldn't confess your love to the person that you wanted to be with and potentially marry and you just died because you were murdered and then you don't get reborn but everyone else around you does and you get to see them living in a free country and you get to see them having the opportunities to experience everything that none of them could in their youth, in their past life because of the circumstances, because everyone was giving all they had for their country and not for themselves. And he is just apart from it. He's there. He's stuck there. He's watching it, but he can't be part of it he can't live he can't grow old with his friends and his love and it's heartbreaking it's very very moving so I really really loved that kind of aspect um there's so much more in this show too there's like this uh I think a really cool character called Temin who's like a real bad dude he's just this young man who's kind of like got all this beef with Han Seju and um he's also like oh I didn't like it he threw his cat across the room I really hated that but He's sort of like, I guess he's the villain of the piece and he's the villain in the past life and now. But I thought he was a really interesting character. Um, so I quite liked that. I liked all the side characters in this. Um, but I think there's not too much else, I think, that I wanted to talk about, except that I took a few random notes while I was watching this. Uh, so I thought I might just uh, touch on each of these points that I thought was worth writing down. So the first one was that Han Seju, he has a writing desk in this big special writing room where he writes all his novels. And on his desk, he literally has a framed photograph of himself. And it's not just like a, a happy snap of him being like, hey, I'm in this cool place, like I'm a tourist or I'm doing something fun or like, and it's like a professional model shot of him, like a proper you know like sexy model shot and he has it framed on his desk and I think it is the fucking funniest thing I have ever seen so I know in k-dramas 
constantly this kind of shit is happening. Like if there's anyone that is famous, they are going to have framed photographs of themselves looking sexy all over their house. Personally, I find that weird as fuck. I cannot think of anything I would be less interested in looking at. He also has in um, Han Seju's mansion's guest bedroom, he has at least two massive blown up posters of himself posing and looking very sexy on the wall. So if you go stay at his house in his guest bedroom, you can basically just look at a huge frame photograph of his handsome face. So that's weird. (laughs) Really interesting, but weird. The next point that I wrote down in my notes is literally just subway exclamation mark because the product placement in this show is unbelievable. Um, it is everywhere. It's amazing. Um, I always find it interesting. Not all modern dramas are like that, but then every now and then you do get them, particularly with Subway um, for some reason. And the one that I find the funniest is when the characters go on a nice date and end up at Subway. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. Uh, my next note is scandals. So because Han Seju is obviously very famous in this drama as a writer, you know, everything he does is considered a major scandal if there's any, you know, whiff of any bad. And I was just thinking about how interesting it is that in the show, one of his major scandals is that he gets, you know, photographed near John Sol. So everyone's like, oh, it's a dating scandal. And I just think it's really interesting. You know, I don't follow, I guess, like tabloid kind of news about Korean celebrities a huge amount, but obviously I do see it when I'm looking up dramas and drama news and stuff. And one obvious thing about it is that, you know, dating scandals are really, they are a proper scandal. They can probably like properly ruin reputations in Korea, um, which is really interesting and very, very different from say like American Hollywood culture where it just doesn't really, you know, you're allowed to date people. It's not going to ruin your whole reputation. But I think sometimes maybe with Korean celebrities, it's kind of more of that that thing where you have to appear available, is that what it is maybe? Um, so if, you, if it looks like you're dating someone, that can be a real, it can be a turnoff maybe for your fans because they like to pretend that they're going to date you one day. I'm not really sure what it is, but it's very interesting. So, you know, in this show, Han Seju doesn't really do anything that bad and suddenly he's, you know, got a massive scandal on his hands. So very interesting. And then the last little bits I wanted to... Uh, just quickly read out. So there is this really nice sort of scene where Han Seju reads this passage from a book and it sort of reflects his past and present life in that he has these moments with past John Sol back in the 30s where each of them is like offering each other comfort when one of them is is probably like not sleeping very well and it's just this idea of putting their hand on their forehead and it's like they keep doing it to each other like over through time or through their memories or in the present and it's this kind of running motive of I guess their relationship and their growing feelings for each other and just their care for the other person I really liked it and so I wrote down the little um, passage from the book that Han Seju reads and I thought I'd just quickly read it out I put my hand on your forehead you worked hard you worked hard to live to survive and to reach this far I put my hands together and pray that your most beautiful days are yet to come. I thought it was so lovely. It's just like a little, I don't know, like a little mantra or a little blessing to kind of place on somebody. And I just thought it was really, really poignant and moving. I really, really love in Korean culture. And, you know, I don't know much about this, obviously, but just through K-dramas I've seen, I love this idea of, you know, you worked hard, like well done and thank you for your hard work. And I I really love that acknowledgement of that, you know, you worked hard to live, to survive and to reach this far. And you should be proud of yourself for doing that. I think that's such a cool kind of idea, I suppose, and not something that really exists in my culture at all. No one's ever going to say or think anything like that. But I think it's so beautiful, the idea that you worked hard to live, to survive. And that's a good thing. Um, the last little bit I wanted to mention, there's a scene where Han Seju is drinking a beer and in English written on his beer glass was something that I thought, I thought was really beautiful. It was such a weird place to find a little nugget of beauty, but on his beer glass was written, 
I miss you more at night than in the afternoon. I thought that was very charming and romantic and beautiful. So yeah, I thought it was great. I think that's it for me on Chicago Typewriter. Um, I definitely, definitely suggest giving it a go. It's kind of like, it's easy to watch. It's quite enjoyable to watch um, because it does flip back and forth between the modern and the past. There is, you know, a lot going on. Um, both have slightly different tones. The modern stuff's a bit more hijinks and a bit more kind of fun and silly. And then the past stuff is quite deep and emotional and tragic and beautiful. Um, so it's, yeah, it's got a good kind of mix, I suppose, that really keeps you engaged in the show. The characters are all really likable um, and I think the performances are all really good. So I definitely, definitely suggest Chicago Typewriter if you are kind of interested in kind of a modern drama, but with a sort of fantasy or supernatural twist to it. It's definitely worth your time. So that's it from me on Chicago Typewriter. So for my random thing of the week this week, I thought I might talk a little bit about the history behind um, the occupation of Korea, which is when the 1930s section of Chicago typewriter is set. So I am definitely no um, expert (laughs) on any of this. And basically, this is just a little bit of background information that I've picked up from dramas and from my own like little bit of reading about the subject. But like, if you're really interested, definitely don't listen to anything I say and go and find out the truth for yourself. Um, But yeah, I, I found it really, really interesting. Every time I watch a drama that does have a historical kind of period and I'm if it is set in a proper time with proper events getting shown I mean it's always so interesting and I always find myself wanting to know a lot more so what is quite interesting to this so technically the period that Japan did occupy Korea was from 1910 till the end of the second world war 1945 but in the lead up to that 1910 which is when um, Korea was annexed by Japan there is a lot of very complicated political turmoil that really directly led to enabling that to happen and I have talked about that a little bit um, in the very first episode actually of this entire show where I discussed a Korean drama, a 2019 Korean drama called Nok Do Flower. So Nok Do Flower is set in the, when is that set? I think it's the very end of the 1800s, so the 1890s. And Nok Do Flower basically is talking about this peasant uprising called the Dong Hak. Donghak Rebellion, uh, which was where a bunch of peasants and a bunch of scholars got together and basically created armies to protest against the government, about the corruption in the government, but also about the fact that, you know, they wanted slaves to not be slaves anymore. They wanted um, widows and some women to have more rights. So it was really like a class uprising. And I found, particularly watching that show and about the history that I learned, I found it so sad because all these people that were part of the Dong Huk Rebellion literally were giving their lives to better their country, to try and create a better Joseon for the future. But in the end, what they did was pave the way for foreign invasion, which is just heartbreaking. So basically, because half the country was rising up against the royal family and the government at that time, the government called in kind of backup troops from China, uh, which was, you know, they have like an ongoing sort of a treaty or I think like almost like a vassal state thing going on with China. So they pulled in some Chinese troops who got sent. But China and Japan had their own treaty, which was neither country was allowed to send military forces onto the Korean Peninsula without first letting the other one know why and what was happening. So China came into Korea to fight against the Donghak rebellion without notifying Japan or in some cases maybe did notify Japan but Japan was at that time for their own reasons really looking for an excuse I suppose to invade Korea 
And apparently that was um, on top of the fact, I think, that they were kind of looking at fighting Russia at that point. Um, I think part of the history behind Japan wanting to move into Korea was that Korea is almost like a stepping stone to Japan. And I think from my reading, if I can remember correctly, Japan was quite reliant on a lot of agricultural things from Korea at that point. Um, their economy was. And so the idea of a different country taking over Korea and cutting off Korea from Japan was like in terms of military strategy and maybe in terms of actually their economy would be a really catastrophic thing for Japan. So that was another reason why they kind of took that Chinese army coming onto the Korean peninsula as an excuse to send troops in. So those Japanese troops came all the way through into Seoul and took the king and queen. And that didn't lead directly to Korea being annexed by Japan. In fact, there was, you know, they left and there was a few more years of peace and a few different things happened over, I guess, the next, say, 10 years. But really, the relations never really, I guess, Korea really never stood back up as its own country. And little by little, through different political things that happened, um, including uh, an assassination of the queen of Korea at, at one point which was um, orchestrated by Japan but I guess you know like very pretending that it wasn't um, because apparently Queen Min who was the Queen of Korea was kind of more the power at that point um, she was apparently a very smart and intelligent woman and she was not keen I think on the Japanese so that's how that ended up um, so really that was towards that happening was towards the very end of the Korean monarchy. You know, that was one of the ending points. The king also ends up dying. And I'm pretty sure that there's even a movie about one of the, so the Korean princess, she actually gets brought over to Japan and she has to marry a Japanese. I'm not sure if he's like a nobleman or a royal. I'm not too sure. But she has, from my understanding, a lot of uh, mental health problems and basically doesn't handle any of that very well, which is fair enough. Of course, she wouldn't. Um, so it's a very tumultuous and dark period in Korean history. And then in 1910 is when Korea officially becomes annexed by Japan. And that's when Japan fully occupies the Korean government. And I guess um, from a little bit of reading that I've done, I did read one novel that an American, a Korean American had written about um, her parents who had actually like grown up in that era in um, Korea. And the idea was, you know, children weren't kind of getting taught Hangul anymore. They would have to learn Japanese. They would have to speak Japanese. So there was a real sort of stamping out, I suppose, of Korean culture or at least an attempt to. Um, and then obviously all through the 30s or the 20s and the 30s. And then it was in 1945 that Korea was finally, um, well, sort of freed, but also that's when the North and South and all the rest of it happened. So Korea really has had such a tumultuous and intense history. Like it's, it's very, very interesting, but it's also very, very scary, I suppose. Just so much has happened to one country. And I remember reading, I don't know if I was reading something or if it was, maybe it was even in a drama, I'm not sure. But I remember reading this passage um, where someone was saying that, you know, throughout their whole history, Korea has been invaded so many times, like multiple times by multiple different nations, but they have never once invaded outward to anywhere else. Um, and that really struck me. I was just like, wow, you know, <laughs> they've had a, a hard time and a hard history. Um, but of course, it's very, very interesting when you see dramas set in periods like the 1930s um, in occupied Korea. So I thought if you are interested in any of that history, um, some good stuff to check out would be one, of course, would be Knock Do Flower, which really sort of puts into perspective a lot of the political events and the internal upheaval in Korea that led to the occupation um, in 1910. So that's a very interesting show. It's a little bit patriotic, but I also understand why, because I suppose it is a very patriotic thing, what these peasants were willing to do, you know, give up their lives to better their country. It's quite an extraordinary thing. Um, and another great show, if you were particularly interested in Korea in the 1920s or 30s, um, a great one to watch is Gakshital. 
So Gakshital or Bridal Mask is a really great tea, uh, a great K-drama starring Ju Won. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. It's all set during occupied Korea and it is about a so, so during that time there were collaborators so there would be Koreans that would collaborate with the Japanese government and by doing that they would obviously get a lot more safety um, promotions money security all that kind of stuff um but they were, you know, extremely looked down on by every patriotic Korean. And then after the war, it was, you know, not great to have been a collaborator, obviously. So Gakshital stars Ju Won and he is a collaborator, which is very interesting. So he is a young guy who I think from memory he works in the police force or like, you know, some sort of military force. But in the end, through a whole bunch of circumstances, he changes his mind and dis- he he realizes that what he's doing is not what he wants to do. And he wants to be, you know, I guess, patriotic to Korea. And in the end, he puts on a mask and starts vigilanting around against the Japanese. But meanwhile, he's living a double life as a Japanese collaborator. So the people that he, when he puts on his bridal mask, he goes and he might save a bunch of, say, resistance fighters. Um, But then when he takes his mask off, he's just a military guy who is just despised by those same people that he's been saving so it's kind of like a double agent kind of show so it's it's a thriller it's very very tense it's very dark um, and it's amazing it's really like nail-biting edge of your seat stuff but it's also wonderful just to see Korea in that era it's very very interesting if you are interested in that history so that was an insanely long random thing this week so I think I will cut it off there So now it is time for my something I'm loving this week section. Um, so for me, because I was on holidays and I didn't really have internet access in the way that I normally do, and I wasn't stuffing my head filled with K-dramas every moment, um, what I was doing instead was reading books. Um, so as you all know, I am an author, so you know I'm mad into books. I love stories in any form that they come at me in. I love them all. Um, So it's been really, really wonderful um, just to get some dedicated reading time. As much as I love books, um, because of my K-drama obsession, I do find, um, which is a terrible thing to admit as an author, but I do find that a lot of my free time does go into K-drama watching. When realistically, as an author, um, probably it should go into reading. I do a lot of reading in the year, um, but... I guess, you know, I do watch K-dramas like every fucking day and I probably don't (laughs) read every fucking day, every second day at least, but you know, I do a lot of reading anyway. Um, So I guess what I wanted to talk about loving um, over the last week has just been the books that I've been reading. So I've read quite a few and I thought I'd just very quickly talk about them. Um, I'm going to try and keep it quick because I think this episode's getting long. Um, So the first one I read uh, is by Juliet Marilia. It's called The Harp of Kings. Um, So if anyone knows Juliet Marilia as an author, she writes these beautiful, lush, romantic and magical novels um, that are about love and just, you know, all the angst in the way of kind of getting those happy endings. Um, And they're always set in ancient islands. So they deal with a lot of, um, you know, like, uh, I guess, Celtic myths and legends, let's say. Um, they're very, very wonderful, beautiful books. She has, you know, she must have, I don't know, fucking 15 of them by now. Um, I recommend them. They are wonderful. Um, if you like kind of historical fiction and you like romance, I think they're, they're not like overly romance. They are romantic novels with, you know, intense plots about other things. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I guess in in terms of my own writing for historical fiction, she would be a huge influence. You know, I love to write books where there's a couple and they're destined to be together, but man, they have to go through some hell to get there. And that's what Juliet Marilia really does so well as, as well. That's why her books are so romantic. You know, that happy ending is such a satisfying payoff <laughs> for what those poor characters have to go through. Um, so I also read a book called The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang, who is an American uh, Chinese author. 
And it is a book that is a kind of a fantasy based on modern Chinese history, or at least that's what they said. Um, I did enjoy this book. I was a little bit disappointed by it, I guess, if I'm honest. Um, it wasn't everything I wanted it to be, but I still gave it four stars because it's a very solid read. I just didn't find it as emotional as I kind of needed it to be. It's a very sweeping epic about massive wars and, you know, huge armies. And I guess I felt like some of the emotion of the events kind of got lost by how big everything was. Um, I would have liked it if it had been a smaller, more visceral story, I think was my issue with it. So that was The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang. Um, very famous series. I did really enjoy it, though. Uh, the next one I read was called The Magnolia Sword by Sherry Thomas. So The Magnolia Sword is a retelling of Mulan. So I think a bit less of the Disney movie Mulan and a bit more of like Ballad of Mulan, the original legend or whatever. But frankly, like, you know, it's pretty close to the Disney movie. I'm not really seeing a huge amount of <laughs> difference. I mean, it's different, of course, uh, but it's similar. So if you loved the movie Mulan by Disney, then I think you would really enjoy The Magnolia Sword by Sherry Thomas. Um, I really, really liked this. I thought at the end, the plot, like there's just coincidences abounding everywhere that manages to luckily everyone gets saved and everything gets resolved because of these mad coincidences. But other than that, it is such a good book. It's a great historical fiction. It's quite serious. Um, the first three quarters are quite romantic. Again, coincidences sort of pop up at the end. That kind of made it a bit less exciting to me. But I still gave this a really high rating. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed it. It's such a fun, good read. Um, and then after that, um, I read a book that has been translated from um, Japanese by a Japanese author called Genki Kwaru. Kawamura? I'm going to say Kawa, Kawamura. Kawamura. Genki Kawamura. It's called If Cats Disappeared from the World. It is a very short novel. Um, I guess it's kind of, I don't it's an adult novel, maybe sort of literary fiction, but not really. It's very easy to read. And it's basically about this young man who's about 30 years old, who suddenly realizes that he is about to die and he gets the opportunity to live an extra day if he is willing to disappear something from the entire world. So for instance, the first thing he disappears is mobile phones. Who's going to miss them, right? Um, but of course, you know, he starts really thinking about his memories that are attached to each of these objects that he is willing to disappear and what that really means. Um, you know, for instance, if you disappear movies, what did movies and stories mean to him? What did it mean to his girlfriend? Like, it's a really... It's kind of, I can't quite explain it. It's kind of funny and a bit silly, but then somehow by the end, it's making you cry and it's very poignant and it's such a simple story yet in fact, very emotional and moving. And I guess the point of the book is it is it is meant to be life affirming. It is meant to make you think about the moments that you exist and remember to be grateful for these things and the people that you can share moments with. But also it is about sort of digging through all the unnecessary crap in your life to discover what's truly important. I mean, all that stuff sounds so cheesy, but it's not really cheesy when you think about it. Um, that is the truth about the world. It's all that really matters, you know, um, living well day to day and being happy and being grateful. Um, so I was I found this book very, very moving. Um, it's called If Cats Disappeared from the World by Genki Kawamura. <laughs> I definitely recommend it. I thought it was very beautiful.